This is Conversations on the Arts. I'm Mary Krieger. I am delighted to have as my guest today Philip Kaiser, the director of the Museum Ludwig in Cologne, Germany. He was previously the senior curator at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles. Our conversation today is about the exhibition Jack Goldstein Times 10,000, which Philip Kaiser guest curated for the Orange County Museum of Art in Newport Beach, California, and is currently at the Jewish Museum in New York. The exhibition features paintings, films, sculpture, sound recordings, and installations. It is the first United States retrospective for Jack Goldstein, who died in 2003. Thank you so much for doing this interview. You're very welcome. Um, so I wanted to start with asking you, what brought you to this subject? What, what attracted you to the artist Jack Goldstein? And, and this, I have to do a retrospective. So one of the starting points was my interest in the art of the late 70s and early 80s. I, like in the past, I've curated shows with Louis Lawler. I've worked with Douglas Crimp. And I also have to admit that I never met Jack Goldstein. He passed away in 2003, as you mentioned. So it was kind of a discursive interest on one hand. On the other hand, it was his work that was maybe more known in Europe and in Germany. He had a retrospective, like a small retrospective, yes. in Grenoble in France shortly before he died. And at that time, I was a curator in Basel at the Museum of Contemporary Art, and I was trying to take the retrospective to Basel but it didn't work schedule-wise, so it's always been like a bug in my head, you know, that I knew I want to work on Jack Goldstein. And I think what I'm mainly interested in is this shift from the 70s, or let's say from the late 60s to 80s. That was my main interest, and that's been an interest in my curatorial work from for quite a while now. And he is kind of a transitional figure in the sense that he came from that Chenard, this art school Chenard, um, and he was part of the friends of a little bit earlier generation. You know, he was That's part, very yeah. and, th and then he came and w went to Cal Arts, which was, um, so I see him a little bit, you know, a part of like, almost like the light and space people and then moving into the, into the, what we call the picture, what we call the pictures generation. Mm -hmm. I think that's very interesting. Also, when you see, I mean, some of the very early works that he did made as a student, you know, like plexiglass pieces, they were kind of related to, to light and space, early Michael Asher, um, and so on. And I think, like, the Finnish fetish you also see having his paintings is very much related to car culture in California in general, I think. The first picture that you see in the catalog, which is him, talk about car fetish, it's funny, I was going to ask you that question. Mm -hmm. um, because he, you see Jack Goldstein, the first picture you pick, you know, when you open the catalog, is a picture of Jack Goldstein in a very immaculate red Corvette, mm -hmm. uh, you know, convertible. Why is that picture the, the picture you chose to go open the catalog? I thought it was interesting. I found it, I talked to a lot of people when I was working on the exhibition, and there was this Belgian friend and filmer who worked on a documentary that never got finished, and he had all these images uh, of Jack Goldstein, and I thought it was kind of interesting to see how on one hand he was showing off, and it's very 80s, of course, and he talks about New York. And when you read, like, the book, the Kellarts Mafia. Richard Hurst's book, was, yes. Yeah, that, that was a little weird that Jack Goldstein, you know, insisted to have a car when he was living in New York. But of course, coming from California, right. it's kind of a given, you know, you can't just... Live without your car. Yeah. Right. And it was, and it was kind of an iconic car, too. Exactly. Uh, so it was kind of a theme, you know, from the very beginning. I mean, his work is also 
you know, it very much uh, deals with like, I would say, not with cars, but like with airplanes, war, this kind of boy's world in a way. And so I thought it was kind of interesting to have it as a theme in the very beginning. It shouldn't be like, it shouldn't be read like as anecdotal in the beginning, but it's also to bring it back to New York in the 80s. Yes, yes. Now, why did you decide to call the show Jack Goldstein times 10,000? Well, the show is called Jack Goldstein times 10,000. Initially, I was planning to call it 10,000 times Jack Goldstein. But then, you know, if you do like a library search or Amazon search, you get in trouble to find Jack Goldstein. And even if his work is all about disappearing, you have to find the, you have to find the book in the exhibition. So I put it after the name. But one of the main reasons was because I thought uh, what he said in an interview to Chris Dercon, who is now the chief curator of the Tate Modern, and at that time was a TV journalist, who asked him um, why don't why do you refuse to sign the paintings on the back? And then Jack said, you know, my name doesn't mean anything. It's just the name of a name. It's a rep- Presentation of a name, it means um, you know there. Like if you look up a, a telephone book, my name is in there ten thousand times. So I thought Jack Goldstein is on one hand all over the place. You know, like when you think of Jack Goldstein as a star, you think like there are thousands of sparkling stars. But at the same time, he's kind of disappearing. Right. You know, it's like both. It's this figure of um, disappearing and being all over the place at the same time. And I think this is kind of the main topic of the show, also the vanishing that started from the very beginning and ends like when he literally vanished the trailer in the San Bernardino Valley. Talking about that, the very first piece that you see when you come into the show is a jump. Can you describe that piece and tell us why you put that in the entrance? Yeah. Did you see the show at the Orange County Museum? I did see the sh- I saw the show in the Orange County because I'm in L.A. Exactly the same. But in New York, it's projected with a projector, like oh. 16 millimeters. Uh, in, at the Orange County Museum, we projected it from a just regular projector. And one of the reasons was, I mean, this, this piece is called The Jump. He made it like in the mid-70s. Yes. And it was also once it was shown on Times Square, you know, on this big screen. And I thought wow. it kind of interesting that it was one of the works that was like in public space. Uh, so I decided to have it like in the entrance because it's so much, again, like the 10,000 times Jack Goldstein and the sparkle lights. He did, it was a very complicated, um, animation. It was called rotoscopic, um, I don't know. I, I don't know how you call it. Like it's rotoscopic animation. And at that time it was very complicated. He took the footage from a movie, from a film, and it's kind of a hidden secret that the film that it's based on or the footage comes from is a Lenny Riefen style Olympia film, mm. you know, with the with the with the divers. And but at that time no one really knew. But it's also about like you see all these figures, this jumping figure, it's a permanent loop that is about and it it deals about with uh, anticipation, what happens next, what are you waiting for? And it's like a figure that disappears and appears in the dark, and um, so I think it kind of resonates with the title of the show. How did you come up with the idea of the way you structured it? It seems almost like a Rashomon story, because he's it's, it's a hard guy to get your your head around. It, so you tell it from sort of different points of view, but I'm thinking again of the catalog, the way you have um, you know different people telling you a different side of the story. In the catalog, you start out with um, Alexander Dimbazi, is that yeah, exactly. So, who is the, actually I, I see is the biographer of Bastan Ader. 
And, yeah, he wrote just published a book on Bus in Otter. Right, but he he compares Bus in Otter and he talks about how uh, Robert Longo said, well, he uh, Jack Goldstein was um, the Bus on Otter of our group, uh, you know, and he compares yeah. his relationship with uh, Bas van Otter, that whole thing of disappearing. First of all, so can you talk about that, the, the, this whole um, way that that Jack this, you know, would come back, that whole disappearing thing that he did? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, um, let me just first first answer the first, the first part of the question. That was about how the show was conceived. Right, you know? exactly. How the show was I conceived was, and, how, and also how the catalog was conceived. I mean, how do you... Yeah. Uh, and why yeah, did you... I was, these different aspects, exactly. Yeah, I was really interested in looking at the work like in a strictly chronological way, you know, to come from the very beginning to the very end and just to see how he how he moves through media. It's very interesting that you see like Jack Goldstein goes like from sculpture to performance, from performance to film, and then to photography, painting. Then he goes back to film and then he jumps to writing or he, he started to write like in the early 70s. So he's kind of you know, no media or no medium was specific enough to stick with it. So I think one of the interesting things is that you see it's like strictly chronological on one hand, but he moves back and forth between media. So in the 80s, when he was a so-called painter, he was trying to finish a film, but then the dealers would tell him no one is interested in the film. So like the underwater sea fantasy, the film that he, he started in 83, right. I think he finished it like shortly before he died, um, you know, he would just stop working on it. But I think it's interesting that you can that you can see how he goes, how he moves back and forth. And so this idea of chronology was the the main goal of the show to have it as a spine, you know, and also in the catalog from the very beginning to the very end, it's strictly chronological. And and then you can see when you walk through the show, like the first gallery um, combines like 16 millimeter performance films that performances he realized in his studio. And early performances from 69 and 71 performances, um, sculptures he showed at the Pomona Museum, uh, with Helene Weiner. Right. She was a director there. So it's interesting. And he was, see, that was his partner also. Right? Exactly. They were, they were a couple like in the 70s. And, right, and, right. And Helene was like instrumental to the whole pictures generation and to everything that happened in the 70s in New York and LA. Actually. But, but I think, sorry. Oh, sorry. Actually, you know, the word the pictures generation, I don't know that that was a name that they called it at the time, but they seem to be calling it now. Is, is, exactly. is that right? I, I don't remember that. It's because, you know, Douglas Eklund, he organized the show at the Metropolitan Museum, the pictures generation. The interesting thing is that it ends in 84. Uh, I think it's 74 through 84. That's the time period he has it. But So Goldstein is kind of part of the whole thing. So this is one thing, like the chronological thing. And so in the exhibition, when you walk through, you see that it goes, it goes into painting. But at the same time, when he was a painter, he also did like text pieces for Documenta 7 in 1982 in Kassel. You know, he would, he would do like aphorisms. And so I think it's, I thought it was like important, you know, to, to hear a sound piece at the same time, you can see like an airplane and you can read something. There are all these different senses that he put together. He was trying to cat, to capture something in like various media. And, uh, I think that's also one of the qualities of him. Nowadays, it's like standard. Every artist does that, you know, when you think of Mike Kelly, but he was very early on. And also he was kind of punished for it because dealers maybe didn't know what to do with it. 
Exactly. I, I, I think that was the main problem. And so also with the paintings, you know, the paintings sold for a lot of money, but also, but then of course it changed. And as soon as they got like more abstract, it got more complicated for him. And as soon as he left the figurative painting, but the, the notion of like disappearing, uh, uh, like a theme through his whole work, like a leitmotif, you know, it starts with the performances. You see him like in the dark, how he tries to escape, how is he called? Like a stage lamp. Yeah, you know that's going back and forth and tries to capture him, and he tries to run out of the la- of the light in the dark and disappear in the dark. There are many pieces where he acts in his studio in downtown Los Angeles, and in the dark, and you just hear his voice. It's also very indexical the work, and then of course, you know, he did, did the MFA performance in 1972 at CalArts. He would bury himself. Yes, right. And there was a little lamp with the heartbeat. So he disappeared. Right. And then... John Baldessari called that one of the most gutsy performances. I mean, it's unbelievable. <laughs> but he did that, isn't it? I, I mean, know. It's insane. I know. Insane. I mean, yeah. But yeah. But at the same time, when you think of like Chris Bird, and he also did a piece exactly, I think also in 1972 or 73, where he disappeared like for 48 hours and didn't tell anybody where he went. Right. And then, so there are similarities. And then the, the whole thing, the thing with Bas von Otter, who went, he did this uh, performance where he ended up going off on a boat and he disappears and, and he, mm. he dies. And actually, Jack um, tragically, you know, did kill himself. I know. It's like the killing, but it's also, you know, the disappearing while painting. I mean, when he paint, when he was a so-called painter, he used airbrush and he also had assistants like Ashley Bickerton and others. He would just pass them like a, like an image on and just tell them, you know, make it big, make it a painting. And they would turn it into a painting and he actually never touched the canvas and also asked them to stencil his, uh, signature on the back or just to sign for him. So he kind of refused to touch it and he kind of disappears in the work or his hands disappear. And also the thing about the untitled aspect of it, the way he didn't entitle any of the pieces. Yeah, um, definitely. So that, you know, it, it is, is sort of surprising in a body of work like Jack's, which does have subject matter. It's not mm-hmm. like John L. Judd or one of these, you know, people like Flavin mm-hmm. or all these people who used to untitle, you know, the minimalists who, who titled their work, untitled their work. He... Yep. His yeah. work does have subject matter, so you're wondering, like, what is this subject? What, what, what's he saying here? What's going on? You know, for the viewer. Yeah, no, I know, and, and, and I think one of the interesting things is when you look at the paintings and you see all these explosions, bombardments, lightnings, you know, you see it's about, like, the ephemerality of light in a way, but also the theatricality at the same time of light, so it turns like painting into special effects, cinemascopic billboards on one hand. On the other hand, you can say the light, it's about everything and nothing at the same time. Everything appears and everything disappears with these light paintings, and that's kind of a theme that runs through the whole... It's like he does like variations of the same theme from the very beginning to the very end. It almost look like they're photographs, too. They're so... I mean, when you see them in person, you realize... They're paintings. If you see them in reproduction, you wonder, are these paintings? Are these photo, mm-hmm. pho- photographs? Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, it doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, you can't really tell. What are they? Mm-hmm. They, have, they have this ambiguity to them, you know, in terms that's of... That's really, yeah, I think that's, that's an interesting point. And, but interestingly enough, some, some artists told me, you know, like in the 80s, everyone thought of his work, of his paintings, like of the war paintings, that they were super cold and you know you can't see the hand of the artist and nothing they were like machine made but when you look at them nowadays you yeah know, 
they're like artists who are much more perfect than Jack Goldstein at that time, then I think that's also what was it? Uh, I think it was uh, Jim Welling who said that, or Tom Lawson, you know, who wrote all these important essays on Jack Goldstein and painting and appropriation. It, it's surprising to him how crafty the paintings look like nowadays, how handmade they are. And actually, I think they are handmade, you know, when you look at them. Even with the films, he didn't want his hand on the film. He had other people <laughs> make the films. I and mean, this aspect of having assistants make the work. Exactly. Yeah, um, that's also something, you know, you think of someone like a Damien Hirst or, you know, all these artists now who have their work fabricated, you know. But Jeff Koons, I know, you're totally right. Yeah, you know, this is a factory where, where, where people are, you know, there is no, like when he came up to Howl Walls, he uh, wouldn't let them, you know, he didn't know how to do any of this film stuff. You know, he didn't know how to make exactly. these films. He had other people make them. So can you talk about that, that aspect of other, using other people to make the, you know, the factory aspect? Yeah, I think he was very proud of that, you know, especially that he doesn't have to make the films, but he has the same techniques and also the same, uh, you know, like, like, the same, that, that he can rent the same stuff from Hollywood studios that Hollywood directors would rent. Of course, they would rent it for a couple of months and he would only rent it like for two weeks or for, for, for one day. Right. Because it was too expensive, but he was very proud about that, you know, that he wasn't involved at all, that he would just give directions and would act as a director and tell, you know, people how the Shane, for example, you know, the park. Yeah, talk about these films. Yeah, suckers. right. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about each, a little bit about the films. You know, the, yeah, the, the film, the, like Shane is very important. I mean, it's a piece that goes back to, it's like the German Shepherd, which was a trained animal and, you know, that barks and you just see it, it's kind of decontextualized with like a black, um, in the back, it's, in, in the back, it's all black. So you just see like the object dog. And I think he was very much interested in, he said, barking. He was very much interested in turning a verb into a noun, you know, that it's like a, uh, the image or the picture that it pictures barking. It's like a, you know, like when you look up a word, for example. So this is the noun barking. Right. And so he was, it's kind of a, an abstract image that also sticks in your head. You know, it has to do like with memory. It has to do with abstraction. And I think, um, this piece is very iconic. Of course, it goes back. That's also mentioned in the catalog, the piece that Bill Levitt, a friend of his, you know, Bill Levitt, Alan Rupersberg, like the, like kind of the older generation that you, he was friends with. That's a piece he made that's, currently in Mocha's collection with uh it's like a painting of a shepherd and uh so there there are all these things in there but when you think like of people artists like Christopher Williams for example you see directly where it comes from you know his whole practice uh, there are other films yeah there I think at that what time, about the what about the, like the ballet dancer and the one with the hands and the uh butterflies I mean these different these are like wonderful these are like dream images on one hand and Douglas Crimp he wrote a wonderful essay on the ballet dancer but I think it's interesting that it focuses on decontextualizing like a foot or a hand um, a barking dog or a knife you know he would just play with all these images he also for example the knife you know it reminds you like of a movie also the barking dog reminds you of a movie and of course he was very interested in using like movie memory in a way he also for his record pieces, um, it's kind of the same thing he tried to realize with with his records and the films. 
And um, and then they were on a loop. They were also on a loop for a three. Oh yeah, the they were on a loop, and it was very important to him that they were short, like commercials. He said, "It has to be like the film has to be only two or three minutes that it burns into your brain, and it's like a, it sticks in there like a like an image, you know, you never forget." And then the the, the whole thing of like M, what is it MGM? The beginning mm-hmm. everybody sees when they go to the films, you know, that lion. Mm-hmm. Um, can you, can you talk a little bit about that one? You see, like the lion uh, and the, the red backdrop. And the interesting thing, I think it's Morgan Fisher who told me that he helped him to get like the footage for the lion, you know, who announces a movie. And so what he's showing is actually the framework of a movie. So that is constantly being announced, but never really starts. Right. So it's this loop of this animal. It's, it's, uh, that's roaring all the time. And of course, it's very iconic. It plays with, again, like with the commercial, it's, it's, it's a nod to Hollywood, to the entertainment industry that he was very much interested in in the in the early 70s. Of course, this goes back to ja, to John Baldessari, his teacher, you know, who started to work with film stills in the late 60s already. So um, I think MGM is like an amazing piece because it's very hypnotic on one hand. Uh, it kind of, you know, it's like a it's a moving image in a way that tries to be through movement and through time, it's time-based, but it kind of tries to burn into an image again. And then it freezes, and then it becomes like a film again, and then an image, and then a film again. So it's like a weird um, mnemonic structure he put together there. Now, um, you have Douglas Crimp, um, you know, discussing, you know, sort of the beginnings of the pictures. By the mm-hmm. way, I didn't really realize it until this show came up that, um, or this whole pictures generation thing, you know, is resurfacing. Was Metro Pictures called Metro Pictures? Because this is the pictures generation? Was that? They were, they were called Metro Pictures. That was actually Jack Goldstein's idea to call it Metro Pictures. Oh, really? So, yeah, yeah, it was Metro Pictures. Yeah, that was I, his idea. And I think it's also like a play, you know, on commercialism and gallery world. I think it's very interesting that Helene, you know, was willing to call it Metro Pictures. That moment of, you know, you talk about Douglas Crimp, that, that moment where they go, he goes to New York, he's teaching at this um, school, and David Sally is also mm-hmm. teaching there. Hartford, yeah. And... um then uh, Jack, uh, he turns to Jack and says, "I'm quitting. I'm going to be. I'm painting. I'm you know galleries want yeah. Von Payne painting." Um, and he had his work before that had. You, can you talk about that sort of transition when he realized, "Oh my God, I bet I have to be a painter." Do you know what I mean? Yeah, he says. Yeah, that's like an interesting quote. I mean, he said to David Sally, you know, who started to paint, who also was like an interesting conceptual artist in the '70s, and then turned into his work into painting. And uh, Jack Goldstein thought, I think it was like in the early 80s, or it was around 1980, 81. Like the first painting is from 1981 that he made. Um, well, no, actually it's from 79. So he must have said it in 79. He said, I don't want to be one of these odd artists who makes films and, and videos and performances. And he started to realize, he just, you know, that he wants to be part of the art market and part of the discourse. And um, and I think that's interesting, but there's kind of an announcement in earlier pieces. When you look at this photographic triptych, it's called the pull. It's like like a triptych with uh, three falling figures or three floating figures, a scuba diver, a guy with a parachute, and someone who commits suicide. 
And that's the piece he showed in pictures at the artist space in 1977. So I think when you look at the work formally, it kind of reminds you of a painting. And then when you look at the first painting, you know, the one with the floating astronauts in the yellow frame that was in the exhibition, um, you start to realize that he moves from photography into painting uh, in 79. So he he was very intuitive about everything, but of course he also wanted to be part of the art market and part of the discourse, and so he was kind of... He he seems to me like to be a very self-confident artist on one hand, but on the other hand, um, what he said to David Sally was surprising to me, you know, that he... Yeah, he was, he was devastated. Yeah, devastated, yeah. kind of. You know, I mean, oh, and also, the, to, to be honest, I, you know, I actually am from like a little bit, you know, I was around then, uh, mm-hmm. that that uh, the people don't realize how, what a big star this David Sally was at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, these, um, you know, the, the Mary Boone Gallery and all this, uh, like they were the really large stars. And so his friends become... You know, I know that's, that's very what... very famous. Uh, you know, in, in all the mag, you know, sort of they were the big art stars, and that's you you forget because now you look back and you realize Jack Goldstein's work was so seminal. But he was he yeah. was showing, he was selling, he was in good gallery, excellent gallery. But but he, yeah. he wasn't the same kind of tra- stratospheric career that David Sally was having at the time. Yeah, it's interesting. But you know, Jack tried to to do the same. I mean, he he showed with 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 Helene at Metro Pictures and then also, you know, he was trying, I think he was like, he had an affair with Mary Boone as well in the early 80s, so okay, he was uh, really trying hard to yeah, get in part there. of that whole thing. Anyway, let's talk about the paintings themselves, themselves, because you did this whole, you know, he did do so many paintings and uh, yeah. let's talk about the paintings. He said that he, he said that he, he painted 500 paintings, but I'm actually not so sure about it. Although it's interesting that you see at the art I just came back from Art Basel, you know, the fair. Yes. And I saw that they're like paintings I've never seen before. And also, I mean, the prices are insane now. When what I are the prices it, now? Well, when I worked on the show, like a, a regular painting was maybe 150 or right. like 100,000. Right. And now they sell them for 750. Wow. And I remember there was... And worth every show. penny. <laughs> Excuse me? And worth every penny. They're worth it. They're worth that money. They're definitely worth it. No, yeah, I know. They're, exactly. they're paintings that are better and others that are worse. They're definitely worth the money. But it's right. like, it's insane. You know, you see that some work was sold at auction in 2000 or 2001 for like $2,000. And right, now they exactly. were for 800000 Right. If only he, if only it stuck around a little longer, you know, yeah. that's the thing you always. But this think. is just, yeah, but this is just the art market. But I think the interesting thing is how he moves, like from the war paintings to the lightnings. So let's talk about the war. war paintings. Can you describe some, a little bit about those? Yeah, some of them. I mean, I think many people were surprised about the war paintings because they were expecting to see some, you know, that that he used like footage or like imagery from Vietnam or like from the seventies, but instead he used like bombardments from World War II, like from Dresden, Moscow, and so on. So, I mean, he was, like other artists um, who were he was friends with, like Troy Brown took, for example, who also used, like, forbidden fascist imagery. You know, he was kind of very fascinated with that. So the bombardments, for the bombardments uh, and the black skies, he used uh, imagery of, like, uh, known photographers and less, like, just, just archival material. And then it's interesting how, like in the exhibition in, at the Jewish Museum, you can really see because the two galleries, you can see, look from one gallery into the other one, and you see how close 
how actually connected they are, you know, how he went from from the bombardments to the lightnings to the natural sources. Yes. And uh, then he did the double lightnings, and I think the double lightnings, they're very iconic. I think he made most of them in 83. Um, two of them were in, at, in the Orange County show, and I think it's interesting to see like a double lightning because a lightning is so unique, and he kind of replicated a lightning and turned it into a double lightning. And then you can see also these artificial technicolor colors, you know, he used like a greenish, reddish, orange. Um, and you also see, you can see that it's a very artificial imagery he used. And you can also see that some of the images are cropped, that they're appropriated. So you can right, what is this thing with the, that he's doing? With, it looks like almost like a, a cropping of a, the way the, the film is with those side... Uh, exactly, is, like in, in the later paintings when it gets right, what, what is it, What is that? What is that image? I, that's a... That, that I think it, it it's very much based like on film, you know. He, at the same time, he was he was working on the underwater sea fantasy, and so I think he was thinking of film. And when you see uh, these are like like the abstract imagery, people didn't like them in the eighties, and they say his painting looks. I mean, it becomes much more like an object in the mid eighties or eighty six. Right. And then some some people would call it like um, neo geo, and they had all these labels, you know. Right. Right. Like it any longer. Right. And I think, like, the critical attention got lost at that time. Yeah, he got killed. Unfortunately, they they, they didn't get it, unfortunately, at the time. Exactly. You know, and now they get it, you know, but... Oh, I know, and and it's also interesting to understand that, like, the the more abstract imagery, you know, that it's based on images he found, on digital images he found on a... How do they call it, like, you know, with the warm... um, With the temperature images? Yes, you know when you when you when you kind of make an abstract image of a like a, a heated body, for example, or like. So it's a, it's actually also based like on a similar source, but it's digital instead of analog at the same time. But I think this quality of you know like a lightning, but also the body temperature or temperature image, for example, they are both based on duration. I think that's very interesting. You see like a very specific moment in the lightning that's very short. And it's banned or it's turned into a painting for etern- like into eternity in a way. And I think it's interesting when he makes these dots on the side that look, that remind you of a film that he kind of tries to combine the duration of the film and the, you know, and the painting. Um, so, and, uh, what about the color? The way he uses color in the later paintings? The later paintings are extremely artificial, and some people, you know, they said it looks like Stella, late 70s Stella. But uh, he was looking, it's interesting, you know, everyone said Jack Goldstein despised painting, but at the same time in some interviews in the 80s he said he looked like at Black Surfaces by Rauschenberg and other artists. And I was surprised to hear that he really went to see all these paintings, and he was very much interested in Barnett Newman. Mm. Of course he was interested in the in the sublime Although his sublime is more like a negative, trashy version of Barnett Newman's. But yet they are, they have a beauty to them. I mean, they are incredibly beautiful. Oh, they are incredibly beautiful. Forbidden, you know, they definitely are beautiful. And I think, and also sometimes they're kitschy, you know, that he turns them into this artificial special effect. I think he tries to undermine, on one hand, he was fascinated by painting, but he also tries to undermine painting in turning it into like a kitsch special effect. Right. You know, that you think like of a Douglas Surf movie or or something kitschy. So the, then um, 
uh, why did he stop painting and move into, uh, you know, what, what happened after, you know, I mean, the, the later transition, you know, the, you know, the sort of moving back to California, the, you know, and yeah, also I maybe, think, maybe you can talk a little bit about the sound pieces also, you know, the, uh, and the poetry, whatever those aphorisms he had, you know, the end. Yeah, of, you know, the interesting thing is like the aphorisms, he started from the very beginning, we have some, Beautiful photographs by Jim Welling in the catalog. Oh, yes. Let's talk about that, that whole relationship and what happened there. Exactly. He took the photographs like in 74, 75 in Santa Monica in his studio building that they shared together. And sometimes, you know, Jack Goldstein would come and show his films at USC. And then he would just, you know, um, stay at his studio. And, and, and Jim Welling took all these photographs. And you can see that he started the aphorisms. Most of them are gone. So we couldn't include them in the show. But you can... he you know, you can read them in the catalog, and he transcribed everything, Jim Welling. But it's interesting that you see, like, writing, like, the, the conceptual was from the very beginning, like, the spine of the work. So the work starts with writing, and some of the aphorisms are very short sentences that are kind of narrative. It re- they remind you of, like, Raymond Carver, for example. Yes. And they go all the way, like, to the late work that are called writings, and his, his selected writings he worked on, the, on those in the last 10 years, you know, where he put like, where he read books. He went to the public library in Los Angeles and read books of philosophers and literature backwards. And then he would put them together like a collage hmm. and turn them into aphorisms. And it's all about like, you think like it's postmodernism talking about postmodernism in a way. So it's like, the embodiment of postmodernism. That's that's interesting, but but it's interesting to see that the whole work is based on writing from the very beginning. But one of the reasons why he might have stopped painting, I think one of the last paintings that's in the show is from '92, and he made maybe one in '93, '94. But he moved to Chicago, and then he was going back and forth. He had uh, drug issues, and then he went back to California, and he didn't have a studio anymore. That was one of the main reasons. And what we show is, like, he compiled his 17 volumes of selected writings that we are showing, like, uh, at the Jewish Museum, but also at the Orange County Museum in a case uh, in the last gallery. So you can read some of the writings, and you can look at it. But he also compiled writings in the late 80s, I think that's when it started also with like, you know, using computers, printers, and stuff like that. But when you look at his late paintings around 1990 and the writing, you can see how close graphic design and typography and painting gets at this point. Yes, yes. How uh, he moves again, like from one medium into the other one without, you know, complaining or without thinking one is better than the other one or more suitable. He was working all the time. And he, he actually was showing. He had shows like with Je- uh, Brian Butler, a few shows, didn't he? Exactly. I mean, I mean Brian he, Butler he, started to... He didn't just disappear completely. I mean, he did have these exhibitions of, uh, uh, with Brian. He had some shows. I mean, Brian, you know, Brian worked for Asher Four, the gallery. And they had like two shows in the late 80s, early 90s, I think. Mm-hmm. And Brian was an assistant at that time. So that's how he met Jack Goldstein. Oh. And I think Brian showed it in around 2000 and was extremely close to Jack the last couple of years. So I can't remember exactly when the last show was, but I think it was around 2000. I guess we'll sort of end it with... I, actually, I, I want to congratulate Meg Cranston for that amazing interview she did with him. Fantastic, right? That is so moving about... How, and his idea that he wanted to be seen. Can you talk about that interview that with, with that she did with him? 
I think it was one of the la- it was actually the last interview, and I she published parts of it in a magazine called Exit. I think it's called Exit, mm-hmm. and uh, but it's for the first time it's published. In the entire interview is, is published in the exhibition catalog, and I think it's very moving. I heard the 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 record, you know, before she transcribed everything. Uh. You could hear them; they were sitting like in a street cafe in Venice, and you can hear the cars. And Jack was talking very nervously in a way. But he was opened and, up to her. He did. Yeah, and it's interesting that he used like he probably used like exactly the same sentences he would use like in the early '80s, even if it was 20 years later. And he had like this interruption of living in a trailer, being like far away from the art market and the art system. But at that time, also in around 2000, 2001, like artists like Wilfred Iravanesha you know, would look for Jack Goldstein and there there was this whole fascination and that and at that time he also did some crits at the art center in Pasadena. Mm-hmm. So with young artists, with students, and uh, I heard many of them talking about Jack Goldstein because Richard Hertz, who was the dean at the time Yes, he did that uh, book, yes. Yeah. And he did the book, you know, and he invited him. I so saw I think uh, it's really thanks to Richard, who is a really great guy. Basically his autobiography he wrote he gave him. Exactly. But the craziest thing about the whole book, The Calarts Mafia, that's edited by, by Hertz, is that Jack Goldstein, shortly after he was printed, he killed himself. Right. He was like at the... Right afterwards, like, right? Right after, the book got published right after Grenoble, you know, like in France. I mean, it wasn't a big show, but at least it was a show. So his career was like, it wasn't on the peak, but he was starting again. And yes. there was a lot of interest from a from a younger generation, which I think is crucial to, you know, to get going. So... So he sort of... Too bad. Right, right, yeah. He, right, exactly. So thank you so much, uh, for, for doing this interview. And You're I hope, very I hope, welcome. and I really hope everyone, um, goes, to, either goes to see the show in New York at the Jewish Museum. Will it travel to anywhere else? No, you know, the thing is, at the museum in Frankfurt, they were initially planning to take my show and then it took me so long to put it together because I started the show, to working on the show like in 2006. And, uh, it just taken me like, or it took me like seven years or eight years until the show was read. Yes. But it was like the circumstances. And so I can't, otherwise it would travel to Germany, but it's not possible anymore. It's right. too bad. But I think it was more important that Jack's show is in the U.S., you know. Exactly. In New York. And, and in New York, too. Um, and also, uh, read the catalog. The catalog is amazing. So thank, so, much. so thank you so much for doing this interview. You're very welcome. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay, okay. bye. Bye-bye. Take care.